Hello, world. Welcome to the Speed Strength Show. I'm Braden. I'm Tommy. And if the English language was a training plan, it would be a wad. Oh, interesting. I was excited for the English language one. Yeah, I feel like I did. We we have talked about this before. Yeah. Well, we knew it was going to come. Not specifically, but we it came up. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, so uh, in what way? Can you expand on that? There's no rules. You literally oh. just do whatever you want. Nice. Like there is no calculated training plan behind a wad. Somebody decided, yeah. what are we doing for this workout of the day? And I'm just writing this on a whiteboard, and off we go. And sometimes I feel like the English language, it's quote-unquote rules, were just made up as it went along. I think maybe they're like less rules and more patterns you know like we say the stuff that we want to say these are things that we notice happen most of the time not always so you know keep that in mind i guess there's just so many exceptions to the rules like i I don't even know if the english language can say it has rules because it doesn't follow them very well there's so many like we could be here for decades using examples from the English language in terms of like how many different ways you can pluralize a word Mm. or, you know, things like that. Like there's just so many exceptions to the rules and anomalies. Yeah. I don't think it's it's chaos. I don't think I've ever learned a, a rule that didn't have an exception in English, you know? So then it's like, why even don't even call them rules then? That's I mean. So to me, sometimes like when you hear things with the English language, I feel like somebody just made that up. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't follow a set of, of rules or guidelines from start to finish. It's just someone was like, we're doing it this way. And I have no reason as to why, but this is what's happening. And I feel like sometimes workouts of the day or the wad as it's called kind of has the same element of, I didn't really carefully plan this. You're just coming in for an hour and this is what we're doing. And Mm -hmm. I think it will make you tired. Mm -hmm. So we're good to go. Yeah. I think a lot of the time, like English language, the whatever would make it easier to learn is thrown aside. If it gets in the way of things sounding nice, you know, um, that's an interesting take. Like, well, we talked a little while ago. I, this is the only example I can think of off the top of my head where like he and she are pronouns that are equivalent. Um, him and her are pronouns that are equivalent, but her has a possessive component and him does not. So where you would say hers, you would say his, but in some of those situations you can say her instead. Yeah, that's fair. You know, because it sounds weird. Like you can say his heart beats or her heart beats, but you would never say hers hearts beats or him heart beats. Yeah. Yeah. Like it just, that's, I mean, it doesn't make sense. And I mean, the classic example I always think of is the number of ways you pluralize things. Mm-hmm. So a word like bottles, you just throw an S on the end. Mm-hmm. And then you see a word like box, but now you have to put an ES on the end to make it mm-hmm. plural. And then you see a word like ox and all of a sudden it's oxen with an E N. Mm-hmm. And then you have goose, which becomes geese. And then you have moose, 
which is moose. Mm-hmm. Like, so even in scenarios where you're like, oh, maybe there's a pattern here that would like, no, it doesn't. Yeah, that's right. You can't pluralize goose the same way you would pluralize moose. Yeah. And that's the point where I'm just like, man, how does anybody learn this language? Yeah. I do like joking like that though. Like instead of saying moose, moose, you would say moose, meese. Or, or mooses. Mooses, yeah. Or instead of saying like, so mouse and mice. Or There's another example. Grouse and grice. Right, yeah. But um, you can see now why the, the language could get like so messed up. Oh, it's impossible to learn. Because of all those different rules. And, and like I said, that's how I feel like from a training perspective, you know, there's, there's calculated to some extent things that like there's guidelines you're following. There's rules you have in place. There's like an overall plan or thought process that then you're bringing into that daily session mm-hmm. as where the wad is just literally something somebody wrote on a whiteboard five minutes before the people showed up to work out. And here it is. There's no rules. There's no rhyme or reason. There was no thought about, is this going to work? Is it not going to work? It's just, it's there and we do it. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like the English language is the same way. It's just there and we speak it, but Mm -hmm. there's really no good reason as to why we're saying certain (laughs) things in a certain way. It's the way things are and it works well enough for now. I guess so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's just, it's, I find them both to be very messy. Yeah, they're messy. They're both interesting at the very least and tiring a lot of the time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> tiring is a good way to describe both of those things. Different yeah. types of tired, mm-hmm. but tired nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, well, one thing, I guess, aside from the inherent difficulty in the language that might prevent somebody from learning said language could be some kind of a mental barrier that could also prevent somebody from completing a wad or any workout that has more thought put into it. A more carefully calculated plan. Yeah. There you go. That's very true. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure how you're going to try to transition that. I think that was one of the smoother ones. It was, it was good. I liked it. So you can pat yourself on the back for that. One. But yeah, talking a little bit about uh, mental barriers and how do we, you know, overcome those mental barriers with either A, as coaches or B, with the athletes that we're, we're working with and what they might be, be struggling with. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because I mean, obviously we both work with a, or have worked with at least a variety of athletes with yeah, team sports, individual sports, sports. Yep. competitive levels. athletes, yeah, yep. all kinds situations, of situations, contexts. And so in each situation, there's like, there's different kinds of mental barriers, I think. Um, and then we've also been athletes as well in a, a variety of sports. So there's different mental barriers that way as well, um, which I thought would be a good way to start the conversation like I was talking about our experience with having mental barriers or, you know, there's a lot of different ways you could phrase it, I guess, as well. Um, Yeah. I don't know what the, like, we're not sports psychologists, obviously. Um, As people probably would have known. So we're not, 
you know, as we've mentioned, we're not experts in anything, but we're certainly not experts in, in sports psychology. So I don't know what the official sports psych term would be, mm-hmm. you know, for, you know, a mental barrier or something that's preventing you from performing a skill or something at your best level. But yeah, I think you're right that every, every athlete or every person who's competing in something, there's maybe something that makes them more anxious or nervous, or they have a hard time completing it with the success that maybe they do other things in their sport. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so yeah, I don't know what sort of stuff you've dealt with, like in powerlifting. Is it a certain lift that's maybe the most nerve wracking or kind of like some people can figure out two of the three lifts and the one they just can't figure out. Is it a component within one of the lifts? Um, maybe there's something else I'm not thinking of. Well, yeah, I mean like there's a lot of different, uh, situations, contexts, like some people will be, well, we talked in the, um, in the competition prep episode that some people are rock solid on game day and some people are a mess on game day. And a lot of that I think comes down to their, like their mindset towards competition. Um, and so that's one big example in that on competition day, some people just fall apart and there's a huge mental barrier that is never present in training that all of a sudden comes into play. Um, I think you're right. Most people, there is a specific lift. Um, but even with that, like some people are really good typically at squatting and benching. Those are their two lifts because short femurs means short humeruses, humeri or whatever. There's another one. Who knows? (laughs) Um, you know, so then those two lifts tend to go together as being pretty, pretty good between the same person most of the time. Um, so then they'll struggle with deadlifts. And for some people, I think in that situation that takes the pressure off deadlifts. So deadlifts are really easy and they feel like nothing, no, no issues with that at all. But then some people get really, really frustrated with deadlifts. And then every time they have to do a heavy deadlift or like an important set, there's all this anxiety around it because it never goes well or whatever their perception is, you know? So there's different, uh, different situations like that. And then some people also, um, I feel like base a lot of their lifting identity around the lift that they're best at. So then there's, you know, potentially a lot of comfort there, a lot of confidence, or there's potentially a lot of anxiety around that going poorly. So yeah, there's a lot of different situations with, with powerlifting. Yeah. Like if there's the pressure, if you're like a squat person, Mm -hmm. or a deadlifter, then you better bring your A game for that Mm -hmm. particular lift. Mm -hmm. I think you sometimes see a little bit of the same thing in track and field when people compete in multiple events. Mm. Um, You know, so maybe somebody, you know, does the one in the 200, for example, but they, they care a lot more about one or the other event. And so that would bring possibly some of the same things that, that you're talking about. Uh, or maybe somebody is is strong in certain aspects of a race and not others. So maybe, you know, someone who's, you know, very fast but doesn't have the capacity gets nervous about the finishing part of a race where fatigue might play a role. Someone who's, 
you know, a fearless runner maybe isn't that great out of the blocks, gets really nervous with the, you know, the calls and the set position and then having to react to the gun because they're, they're not comfortable with the blocks. So I guess you could see a little bit of the, the same thing. And, and then in a training environment, you know, some people, some people like to, to move fast. Some people like to lift heavy. Some people like to do exhaustive things. Other people don't. So I'm sure there's all sorts of different aspects in training where people will get a mental block or feel more anxious about conditioning or a heavy lift or testing in the weight room or something, something like that. I think there's a lot of places that you can potentially run into some of those mental barriers where someone feels like it's impossible to overcome, you know, a certain conditioning test or drill that you're doing in training or a certain heavy lift or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting that you, I was really curious to, to see how this conversation went because I don't know. I feel like a lot of people will acknowledge the mental barriers as like a significant thing in lifting. And I know like powerlifting as a general community recognizes like the anxiety around heavy lifts and things like that. Um, but I've never heard of like that kind of mental block or mental barrier with regards to sprinting or any like track and field event. But just like any other sport we were talking before, it makes a hundred percent sense that it would be there. Yeah. And in the longer events, it could be, again, I'm not a, an expert on the endurance of the distance side, but it could be somebody's not super comfortable to make a move. For example, like in a, in a one K like, mm oh, the pace feels a little slow. Should I take charge and move to the front and pick up the pace? Some people might really struggle with, is that the right move? Is it the wrong move? I don't know. Mm. Like there's, like you said, every sport is going to have different things that could come in as like a, a mental sticking point. Could be a, f a free throw in basketball. Mm -hmm. uh, could be, you know, place kicking in football or mm -hmm. rugby, right? All the pressure's on you to deliver in that, that one kick and, you know, um, you know, catching, catching a ball in football. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of different, different things in various sports that could be the, you know, that mental barrier or that skill or action that people maybe overthink or have a really tough time overcoming and being confident in themselves to, to mm -hmm. do it to the best of their ability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so in, sprinting or various sports or whatever that you've played growing up like was there any kind of uh consistent like mental barrier that you remember or in training or whatever um that you remember like having to work through or anything like that oh definitely in football it was catching the ball yeah yeah there's a reason i liked playing db a little more than hmm. receiver mm -hmm. um yeah. Catching the ball was like, I overthought that all the time. Mm -hmm. And the number of times where a play would kind of seamlessly happen and then the ball would be coming your way. And then all of a sudden, make sure you catch the ball, make sure you catch the ball. Don't drop the ball. You have to catch the ball. And it, it didn't have that natural mm -hmm. sort of flow state or just like, boom, boom, boom. The play happens without thinking. There was always a component where in practice, in games, in drills, I was always overthinking about catching the ball and on the track side of things that was definitely in the blocks or starting 
Hmm. Once I was up and going, you're in the race, you're good to go. But there was always for me, a lot of like, man, I got to nail the start. I got to be, I got to be perfect. I got to do this. I got to do that. As opposed to just like gun goes run fast. Mm -hmm. Always overthinking the start. So those would be, at least for me when I was playing in those sports, those were the two things that, you know, always I was overthinking over some sort of barrier that sometimes I felt like, Oh, you're like, you're never going to be able to catch the ball that well, or never going to be able to exit the blocks Mm -hmm. that well. Uh, So those were definitely the examples that I would have dealt with like myself when I was competing. Yeah. I feel like that's pretty common. You know, it's, I think, well, yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people in those situations, that would be, those would be the things. Um, I think it's always whatever you feel like you're not, I think you said it perfectly there. Like I'm never going to be able to do it that well. You know, as soon as you have thoughts like that, then, you know, there's, it's like you always have to prove yourself every single time. And then there's all this pressure on that specific thing every single time, you know? And it could be different. Like the football example, there were maybe, there were people that I played with that never had to think twice about catching the ball. Just boom, it happened. Mm -hmm. But they maybe overthought, like maybe they were worried about their route running Mm -hmm. or something like that, which for me was just whatever. This is the route I'm running. Boom. Good to go. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the ball was in the air, different game. Mm-hmm. that standpoint so it's going to be different for each people for every person based on their skill set i think as yeah well. yeah that's right yeah that's right that's interesting um yeah for me in football and rugby as well it was uh tackling it was the weird one um, just making sure you get the job done yeah because it was always like uh like i played hockey when i was younger and hockey's a very and i wasn't that good i only played house league so there's no body checking when i played um, but like, so used to being upright the whole time, never really had to get low. And plus I'm taller than a lot of people, especially back in high school. Um, so, so used to being upright and tall. And then all of a sudden everyone's telling me to get low and then no lower than that, and lower than that, you know, and, You're like I can't go any lower. Yeah. I just was never, was never, uh, like quick at getting down that way. Um, and yeah, so like from the beginning of playing football, that was something that I wasn't good at. And then I think I just built up a lot of like anxiety around that as well. And so, and fortunately I was pretty strong. So I could just kind of grab people, wrap them up and fall down. Um, <laughs> Take them with you. <laughs> and it worked well enough in, in football and rugby, you know, like it's, it's kind of weird. I think maybe for a lot of people to think about, like I played in university, I played defensive line in university and then having anxiety about making tackles, you know, but uh, yeah, it was a big thing. Like in, in grade nine, I was supposed to be starting defensive end. And then I missed a few tackles in the pre uh, the preseason scrimmage that we had and then got benched and then got moved to offense for the next two years until I earned my spot in grade 11. So yeah, it was interesting. Um, in powerlifting specifically, I don't know if I had any anxiety around like a specific event. Um, I think there was, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I ever really had any like big, big barriers for that. Just 
like heavy stuff always feels heavy and you're always a little bit nervous for that. Um, I think I was always more nervous for high rep stuff. Um, just because I think like, I know it's going to hurt, you know, the pain is definitely going to be there. Yeah. Like I would, I would much, much rather do like a maximal set of two or three than an easy set of 10. It might've been all, all day. All it day. Been, yeah. It might've been different when I started lifting, but right now that's a hundred percent the case. So. Yeah. It's interesting that, well, like you said, for, for different people, like I, I've definitely worked with athletes that are very uncomfortable with getting under a heavy bar. Mm-hmm. That's not a, it's not a comfort zone for them. Yeah. Cause like you mentioned some, like for yourself getting under a heavy bar is you're like, okay, perfect. Like, let's go. I like lifting heavy and I'm a little bit the same way. I not really nervous to get under a heavy bar and, and try to move a lot of weight, but yeah, there's always that like, pause or deliberation where you're like, Oh, this is eight reps. I don't really know if I want to do this. Okay. Let's, let's get into it. Right. Is where for other people, it could be the complete opposite. Like, Oh, give me the eight to 10 reps all day. But as soon as the weight is heavy or the, the bar is, you know, loaded a lot more than usual, then it's like, Oh, okay. Now I'm nervous or uncomfortable to get under the bar. Cause mm-hmm. I'm worried this might be too much weight for me. Yeah. And I, I think that definitely for some people, it's like a, a fear about, I guess, I guess it's always, I think sometimes it's a fear of like hurting yourself. Um, I think maybe most of the time in like more experienced lifters and more experienced athletes, it's a fear of failure, you know? And Failure could mean failing the rep, or if, I guess failure just means not performing up to whatever standard stint. Yeah, that you had for yourself. You know? So, if you're someone who is really good at heavy weights, then you might be really confident in your ability to do that. So, no anxiety there, but you might be really not confident in your ability to do high volume stuff. So, that could be that. Or, you know, maybe there's a lot of pressure. So, you got to make this heavy set move really, really well because you're good at this and it doesn't matter at all how your volume stuff goes as long as you finish it, you know? Yeah. It's just, it's get to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, have there been any like with um, like more beginner level athletes or like you work with uh, rookies on the team, first year athletes that probably don't have a lot of lifting experiences there. Do you notice different blocks for them? I guess or different, different things that get in the way. There's some, yeah, you see it sometimes with, um, like you mentioned, sometimes first year athletes, um, or I also see it a lot too with some of the high school athletes that I work with. If someone's never set foot in a weight room before, just the weight room environment in general can be intimidating for some people. So they're maybe not necessarily concerned with, you know, high rep stuff or heavy, because let's be honest, they, they don't really know any better. They don't know what it's like to lift heavy weight. They don't know what it's like to lift a lighter load to complete exhaustion. If they're new to the weight room, they've never experienced that stuff. So they don't have the, the history or the past to compare to, to go, oh man, lifting heavy is terrifying, or this is going to hurt 
if I go to 10 reps. They don't really have that experience to be nervous about. But sometimes the nerves are entering a space that is, is new for them for the first time, especially if you're, you're on your own, right? Which I think one of the advantages with, you know, with some of the university stuff is that an athlete will never have to set foot in the weight room for the first time on their own. They're always there with, with a coach or with somebody. Um, as we're sometimes with the high school kids, their first experience before they lift with us might've been just going on their own to a gym by themselves. And so I think that's the biggest kind of block that I see with, with younger people or younger training age athletes that have never lifted before in terms of what makes them a little nervous about lifting is it's not the actual things that we're doing in the weight room. Cause they haven't experienced it yet to decide if they like it or if they don't like it, but just the, the intimidating presence of being in a weight room and seeing everybody doing stuff and feeling like you're the only one who doesn't know what they're doing and that you're kind of out of place. So that's probably the biggest thing that, that I see with, with younger athletes that have never set foot in the weight room is them usually being timid to, to be in the space in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's honestly not even something that I thought about when we were prepping for this episode. Um, well, me neither. This was, this came as a response, like with the question that you asked, that I thought was good. Mm, fair enough. Um, but yeah, yeah. Like younger people or I, I mean, I think women a lot of the time are intimidated to even go to the gym, you know, I think, and depending on the gym environment, like the reputation of the gym or the attitude of the gym, then there's yeah that sort of environment sets, you know, like certain gyms are more welcoming or they appear more welcoming to beginners. I think, I think most gyms are very accepting of beginners. If you, or at least most, most private gyms, I would say, um, like if you're talking about like good life and, you know, LA fitness and like yeah, all those a public chain gym. Yeah. Then they're, I mean, like they are and they're not like, they're not going to exclude you, but they're not going to help you either. Really? No, um, but it probably feels a lot different to walk into a good life than it does to walk into West side. Oh, certainly. Like that would be like that's intimidating. Where yeah, yeah, like everyone in there's like prepping for world records and things like that. That's I mean, Uh, so right, that's I I get what you're saying though. The the environment that's created there is very important. Yeah. In terms of how somebody coming in is going to feel. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. 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 And uh, but I do think that most gyms are willing or like excited to help you. You know, as long as you show that you're excited and you want to be there and you want to learn and get better and stuff like there's no, there's nothing wrong with not having experience, you know, because until you have the experience, you're not going to have it. You know, it's got to start somewhere. You can't ever punish yourself for not knowing something that you don't know, you know? Um, but I think, yeah, it's always more about the, the attitude and like just the, the desire to get better is really the only thing. Um, for me, a lot of the times, aside from that, I notice that with beginners always where, you know, they don't, they're just nervous to get into the gym. Um, but what I'll notice a lot of times is like the, the scary positions in lifts. So, well, mostly it's the squat, the bottom of a squat is a scary position. And even with body weight, 
or like super, super lightweights, there's a point where like you're strong until you get to like athletic position or a little bit below that. You're maybe strong at the bottom, bottom, but there's a point in the middle where you just have to trust your body and like, yeah, to go further. Yeah. Like there's, there's a point where, and you ask people about it and they're like, I mean, like maybe I can go lower, but I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to come back up. You know? Yeah. And that's, that's a really common thing. And I mean, you see that with beginners in the, in the gym all the time, or like all those different like gym fail Instagrams and things like that, where people are just doing like quarter squats with 400 pounds, you know, because they think the weight on the bar is the thing that's important, you know, or what makes it look impressive. And I mean, honestly, when I started training in grade 11, like I was doing that kind of thing too. Cause I thought, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Just lift heavy mm-hmm. by any means necessary. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, sinking into a deep squat with heavy weight is, it is terrifying if you haven't done it before, you know? So, um, the other thing actually that I think is interesting and it kind of goes back to not like knowing or not having the experience, not knowing what to expect. Um, I noticed this when we were working with, uh, varsity, I'll just say varsity Mm -hmm. and not say which team specifically, um, that people that didn't have the experience lifting heavy would lift something. It's very easy for them according to our experience, but they don't know that they know that it feels heavy to them because they haven't lifted like that before. Yeah. And they're like, I can't do any more. It's really heavy. And I'm like, no, you can do more than that. You can add 30 pounds to that and it would still be easy. You know, they just don't know yet. Yeah, exactly. You don't have any reference point. Are there any particular strategies that you use with this? Obviously again, with our limited, you know, scope of this where we're not sports psychs, but there might be strategies that we have to use to, you know, help somebody get through a sticking point or, or something like that. I wasn't sure if there's anything specifically that you, that you use or. I mean, it definitely depends on the, like on the athlete and on the situation, Um, you know, with the, with the, with that example, with the bottom of the squat for beginners, um, like backing off the weight significantly, you know, so they're not afraid to get to the bottom. Um, or probably the biggest thing is changing the squat. So people will feel that way more often with a back squat, but like not at all with a goblet squat. Um, and a little bit more probably with a front squat, but less than a back squat. And I don't know why that is. I think it's probably something to do with being able to bail the weight easier. Um, I think it's probably something to do with like being more upright. You can kind of just sit back and let the bar balance you. And you don't really need to like sink into your hips the same way you do with the back squat. Um, so then that that point where you have to trust your body is like less severe, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's always, I think, about just getting creative with 
making the situation a little bit more manageable. So those examples make that scary part of the squad a little bit more manageable. Um, people that struggle on competition day, you know, you got to probably make sure that their competition starts off on a really solid note um, or at least whatever their more anxious lift or their more challenging lift, whatever that is, goes really, really well. And if that means you leave, you know, 15 pounds in the tank, but everything flies and they go three for three, that's great. You know, if they, because of uh, like starting off, if, if squats your lift and starting off with, you know, going one for three on squats and like missing your PRs, that can quickly derail a competition. So yeah, some, some stuff like that. I don't know. It, like it's, it's very individual, very individual for sure. Yeah, that lines up a little bit with me. There's kind of two strategies that I'll try to use. And, and one of them is, you know, trying to create an environment where failure is okay. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think if you take away the fear of failure from people, you can potentially avoid the situation like that you described when you played a preseason game, missed a couple of tackles, and then you were off defense for two years. Right. So then all of a sudden that can derail somebody for a little while and then feel like they have to, you know, prove themselves or come back. So creating an environment, I think where people are okay to fail or that there's no shame in failing uh, will help. And then I think as coaches, if we have sound progressions and regressions, kind of as you've talked about, that helps as well. So I think if there's, you know, a sticking point where someone's nervous about a particular exercise or doesn't like, uh, you know, a certain drill where they feel like they're not capable of getting it. Do you have a way to, you know, progress the drill and then progress them back to make the drill simpler or easier to build their confidence and to give them the, uh, like the confidence that they need to execute the skill properly. So maybe you see they're struggling with could be any movement or even sports skill, depending on what you're, you're coaching. And then you think about, okay, is there a way that I can take this a few steps back, make it easier for the person. They start to have more success with whatever that could be. It could be a particular lift. It could be catching a ball. It could be making a tackle, whatever, start scaling back that drill. And then as they get more confident, you can start to move things back up. And I think if, as a coach, if your drills or exercises, if you have really sound ways to progress and regress those, those drills, then you have a way that you can, you can build confidence in the athletes in terms of what it is that they're, that they're trying to do. So. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I like that a lot, actually. Um, the kind of, just, I mean, I guess that's like, that's the stuff that I do. I just never thought about it in that kind of a simple way where well, as soon as you were describing it, that was, I was like, Oh, those two points of what I do. I'm like, boom, that is the, you know, having sound progressions, regressions. I feel like that's mm -hmm. exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're on, on the one side you want to kind of whatever, like it's definitely that debunking that fear, whatever it is that they're afraid of and is leading to these, that block or that anxiety, then trying your best to get to the root of what that is and 
I mean, ultimately it comes down to the person they have to know within themselves that it's, if it's failure, it's okay to fail. It's not a big deal. It doesn't reflect on me as an athlete or me as a person or whatever, you know? Um, and obviously the coach can help a little bit, but ultimately they need to make that decision for themselves and exposing them to that fear, I guess, can kind of help them realize that it's not as big of a deal as it feels like it is. And then, yeah. And then making things easier from a standpoint where you can build up that confidence. Um, yeah. So it, like in, in competitions, we'll make things easier for those lifts. If it, and I've, like other coaches say the same thing, like this person's a squatter, very mental lifter. They need to get off on a good start and their squats need to move really well. Um, or else it'll like, if there's any risk of failure, it's not worth it. Cause that could mess up his whole, his whole meet. Um, and even in the gym, like people will, um, you know, if people get really in their head about their technique on a lift, then it's time to scale back and just make it easy and just get them back to grooving consistently and get confident with that, that pattern. Yeah. Simplify the goal for them Mm -hmm. where now they're not having to think about eight or nine different things. Just do this one thing. Yeah. Do it well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, another thing that I think maybe is more specific to powerlifting that leads to mental barriers is like those, those round numbers or those milestone numbers, you know, like two plates, three plates, four plates, or like 200, 300, 400, 500, like those, those numbers. Um, there's a lot of pressure on those numbers to be a part of this club or whatever. And so people, and I, well, and even coming from the football backgrounds of like the thousand pound club or something like that, Mm -hmm. where there's, yeah, there's milestone numbers that yeah you feel this almost like unconscious pressure to try to achieve. Well, unconscious and like, or completely conscious as well. You know, when people, when you see it all the time on social media or like when people are testing or setting goals or whatever, they're like, okay, just, yeah, squatted 405. It was great. 500 is right around the corner. And like, well, A, no, it's not. That's going to take not, it's, it's 95 pounds away, <laughs> you know, but also just, I mean, take some time and celebrate what you just did. And like, I know you're going to, obviously you're going to be pumped for 495 or 500, but like, you're also going to be pumped for 425 and 430 and like well, there's you should so be. many numbers in between you know like why is because it was better than what you were doing before exactly so you yeah. should be and, happy and stoked about that yeah and if and if people are well a with goal setting if people are you know if they're maybe their pr is 365 for squats something like that and they're making a bunch of progress they like realistically in the gym can actually squat 385 that's the time when they're like I'm ready to try 400 because 400 is so important, you know, and then that number just gets so in their head and they get focused on that. They, maybe they get 385, but they didn't get 400. So they're upset and they feel like they let themselves down, you know, and they'll just keep trying that. And that's the number they have in their head. And I think that people get stuck on that number and they don't take the 385 or the 390 or the 395, you know, and like they just keep trying 400 when they're not ready to try it. 
and they get stuck there so much longer than they would otherwise. When if they didn't care and they took the 385, then the next time they tested, maybe it was 390. And then the next time they tested, maybe it's 410. You know, like it's, you just, people get stuck on that. And then they don't, they don't, they're not thinking about 410, which would be cooler or 415, which would be cooler than that. You know, I don't know if that happens in sprinting at all or if you deal with that in your weight room stuff. But it's funny you bring that up. I mean, with, I think with varsity athletes, I can see the milestone numbers being more of a thing with strength athletes because mm-hmm. the sport is fixated, fixated around those numbers. Haven't really dealt with that before with, with varsity athletes lifting. Cause I think if they're getting stronger than they're, they feel like they're accomplishing what they need to do in the weight room. Mm-hmm. But on the track, you definitely see that type of, like you said, that mental block or that pressure where if the distance they're running equates to an event in competition. Mm. So somebody might not, if you told them to run a 220 or a 180, they wouldn't even think anything of it. They would just go ahead and do it. But if it's a 100 or a 200, and now they can associate the time they run with something directly in their competition, Mm. it creates, like you said, a little bit of that, that overthinking, like I need to make this run faster than what I'm capable of doing in competition because I need to be getting better, Mm. which, yeah, you do need to be getting better, but now all of a sudden you've, you've polluted some thoughts into their brain that instead of just going out and running fast and having a good rep, they're now overthinking things. So, and you could argue for whatever reason, if you were putting in a, you know, a 100 or a 200 that they were going to run within the practice plan. If you made it 215 or 110 and it was just slightly different. So the time now that they get isn't associated with competition. So it takes a little less pressure off. I mean, are you really going to get any more or less out of training from that? Probably not, but you might in turn get a better rep out of them mm-hmm. because they're not concerned about the time if they're running a 215 because they have no idea what they're actually capable of running 215 meters in, in mm-hmm. terms of time. So they come back and it's the rep felt good or the rep felt bad for whatever reason. As where if you have them run a, a race distance, it's always going to come back to what was the time and they're going to compare it back to what they think they should be getting based mm-hmm. on competition. So I've seen a little bit of the same thing happen in, in track and field uh, that mm-hmm. you're describing there. And I think as a, like you mentioned, trying to change the focus of it for, for people can usually be a good strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually, that's really interesting. I wouldn't have thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, I tried that myself the last, was it last summer yeah. when I was competing? And I wasn't giving myself like 100s and 200s in practice. I was doing like 175 or 230 mm-hmm. or 130, something like that where I have no history of what time am I capable of running over that distance just to kind of just, yeah, take the pressure off or it's just, I just got to go out and run fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely see like, if, yeah, definitely the closer, the more specific it gets to the thing that matters, there's more pressure or anxiety around that. Um, yeah. Where like, people will put a lot more pressure on 
singles than they do on rep work. And the more reps they are, the, the less pressure's on it, unless it's like a rep range that you work in a lot and you know your rep PR in that range or your volume PR is in that range. Then, then there's a little bit of pressure, but it doesn't matter as much. And if you're doing singles, but it's a, a variation, then the weight doesn't matter. It's still really. different enough. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, but I think athletes, yeah, they put a lot of pressure on like, I need to be getting better all the time. And they're definitely always comparing their current self or sometimes their worst self to their best self, which was, you know, their most ideal competition scenario. And it's hard, but you got to look at like the trend and you can't look at the individual day and things like that, you know, so it's, and it's, it's tough to compare a day where you were p- trying to peak your best for competition mm-hmm. versus a day where you're in the middle of a heavy training cycle, for example. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You're in a different spot physically and mentally. Exactly. Um, the, the one actually I was wondering, um, the milestone numbers, like I want, does the time, do people get caught up on like, like having goal times? You know, when they, when they're like going into a competition or going into like a testing scenario where like I've run, you know, 11.55 or something, this is the time I break 11.5 for sure. Well, yeah, those, those sort of landmarks are there for, for everybody. I mean, you know, if you ran 10.99 versus 11 seconds, it's a very small difference. But mentally to say I broke into the 10 second barrier. Mm-hmm. that changes it for a lot of people, for example. So there are some of those same things or if somebody comes in with a, with a PB of like whatever number low. So they ran, you know, 17, two and like, Oh, it'd be great to run 16 something in a certain mm-hmm. distance or, you know, with jumping, Oh, I'm five eighty, whatever. It'd be great to go over six meters. Or th- there is some of some of that where I feel like sometimes people get caught up with certain performances or in this case, like standards, mm. where if there's been a specified time or distance or performance mark that you need to qualify, mm. then people get obsessive over that particular number mm-hmm. uh, where it's like, I got to hit this time or this distance because I want to qualify mm. rather than just focusing on just go out there and do what you're capable of doing and let the number come to you rather than mm-hmm. you chase after the number. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, um, that kind of thing happens a little bit in powerlifting too, with like the, the standards, you know, um, there was Wilkes for a long time, um, oh, yeah. which was like the body weight to weight lifted ratio. Um, yeah. So based on your body weight, there was always certain standards where you're like, I need to hit this number to get whatever Wilkes score. Yeah. And so yeah. like 440 was a number for a long time. That was like, I, I think at one point it qualified you for like international competition. So people were like, if you, if you got this number, you could apply to compete at the Arnold's or something like that. Um, and yeah, like 400 was a number that meant if you, if you lift, if you have 400 Wilkes, then you're a good lifter. No one's going to deny that you're a good lifter. And if you lift 500, you are great and nobody lifts over six. Really? Yeah. Um, so, um, but yeah, the, um, sometimes what will, another thing that'll happen is like whatever the heaviest thing an athlete's doing on the day 
is the thing they're going to associate or put the most pressure on. Um, so one thing that we've, that I've tried to do before is like, if the thing that I care about is a heavy set of five or whatever, and say that's going to be at 85%, something like that, then give the athlete a single. So it's one rep, which is closer to competition and it's a little bit heavier, 88% maybe, but it's going to be a lot easier and it's not going to like really take away that much from the, the thing that I care about. But once you do that, then now this is easy because there's not pressure on that anymore. And you shifted the focus of the pressure a little bit too. Mm-hmm. You've almost like hidden it in there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then the, on top of that, the athlete gets excited about doing singles. So, and exactly. then the singles feel easy, which builds confidence as well. Yeah. No, that's definitely, yeah. Something that you can do. Yeah. Don't put all the pressure on one thing. Like, Hey, you better go out mm-hmm. there and do this thing really well. Cause the whole workout hinges on it mm-hmm. or the whole training session is going to come down to that. Cause then all of a sudden, yeah, they're going to be like, well, yeah, that was done poorly. My whole training session was a waste of time, mm-hmm. well, which is people- not necessarily going to be true. Yeah. I think people feel like that sometimes though. Like it was a bad day because this thing went not the way I expected it to. Yeah. But like you said, that's a strategy that you can use to try to help Mm -hmm. shift the focus or, you know, avoid that within the best of your ability Mm -hmm. as the coach to, to not have that, Mm -hmm. that happen. And I think that's where, like when I talked about trying to create an environment where failure is, is okay. It's obviously a fine line. Because if people fail every single time, all the time, no one's going to have any confidence. Mm -hmm. But I think knowing that there's not going to be any like massive fallout, like it's okay if you're not moving the heaviest weight that you possibly can on a day or you're not running quite as fast as you should be able to. That's okay. Yeah. You know, there's days where sometimes we have to sharpen the ax and then we can come back and chop down the tree Mm -hmm. the next day. Um, And I think for myself too, it's, you know, being open and honest with the athletes in terms of the failure, not being the end of the world and using like myself as an example, like there might be like, Hey, you know what? We did this and that with the program. I messed that up. That's on me. Let's make this, this change. It's not that you're the only one who that shows some humility mm-hmm. in some sense that, Hey, we're in this together. I might make some mistakes. You might make some mistakes, but that's okay because we're going to learn from them and then better our practices moving forward. And I think sometimes as an athlete, if they hear the coach say, Hey, no, sorry, that's on me. I made a mistake with that. Let's tweak this and try it differently. Then it can create an environment where the athlete goes, okay, this particular thing didn't go that well. It's okay for that to happen. Let me make this tweak and let me try to come back better. Right. So I think that's, like I said, I'm not a sports psych, so I'm trying to come up with strategies that sort of work within our scope or within our, our realm. And I think those are the two big things that I've been, had some success with in terms of creating an environment where the athletes know that failure once in a while doesn't come with a massive consequence and being armed with progressions and regressions to help build confidence, to overcome some of those mental barriers for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's been times where 
uh, yeah, athletes are saying like, I mean, let's just feel really bad right now. Or like the last few weeks haven't been that good. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, I, we, I've noticed that, you know, I, this was kind of the last week where I was going to see like, is it just, you know, some extra stress from school or whatever, or is this thing that we're trying actually just not working either way? It's fine. We just learn from it. And like you say, make the change and yeah, being open about that, I think is helpful. And then, um, yeah, I mean, the athletes appreciate you being adaptable and, and, and things like that as well. Um, and yeah, and then, and then letting them know that it's okay to fail. And like, if you do nothing bad happens, you know, you're not all of a sudden you're not worse for it. It doesn't define you. It's temporary. You know, all these things It's just one day, look at all these amazing sessions you've had lately. And this one doesn't define you kind of thing. Um, I do think there is a little bit of extra, uh, pressure. This was the last, the last area that I wanted to get into. Yeah. Um, with athletes that have like an injury history or are coming off of an injury. Oh that, yeah. That's a whole nother, like that, that that's a tough one to get through. Yeah. Once you get like back into the range, like their old, you know, range of lifting or like doing something similar to the thing that like hurt them. If it was an instantaneous thing, you know, all those, all those sorts of things, it's, it's tough. And then I think people, like any little tweak or any little sensation just is, is terrifying because I don't want people are hypersensitive to it. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good, really good point to bring up because that's, that's maybe one of the toughest, toughest mental barriers to break through is coming back from an injury. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a whole, at least in my, like that's a whole episode on its own. Oh, definitely. Um, Like that's, but yeah, that's a great point to bring up because that's a big one mm-hmm. and everyone gets hurt at some point. Yep. Not to be a negative person, but everyone gets hurt at some, if you're playing sports and you're trying to compete at a high level, everyone gets hurt at some point. Yeah. Um, so I guess, yeah, we'll maybe we'll touch on that one because we do want to talk about training or like injury rehab coming back from injury at some point. So, yeah. And I feel like that's a huge, that's definitely a topic that shows up. Like yeah. I said, if we, if we start talking about, you know, overcoming the mental barriers of injury, we're going to be here for another, yeah, maybe, another hour. I think maybe we'll leave that one. Then. <laughs> um, but it's great that you brought that up because it 100% is, you know, as a coach who works with people in the weight room or in training, probably the biggest barrier you're going to come up against. Yeah, I would say so. Building confidence back from injury and things like mm-hmm. that. So yeah, definitely a great point to bring it up. Yeah. So all I'll say on that is just take your time and be careful, but <laughs> live to lift another day. Yeah, that's right. Um, one thing that, well, I don't know if it's actually helped me combat mental barriers or anxieties or whatever, but maybe helps me forget about them is music. I know for myself, that's the one place where failure is not okay. You can never fail on the music choice. Always got to have that set up. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I know like the song that I'm listening to when I'm getting ready for my third deadlift and it's just like everything melts away as soon as you walk on the platform. So yeah, that's another one. Big impact. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
can help or it could potentially lead you to do a lot of stupid stuff too. Like, oh yeah, I got this. I got this. And then we've all been there. Well, there's a reason that I don't listen to those songs before squat and bench. It's (laughs) only only a deadlift. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So what, uh, what did you have kicking around on the, on the cassette cassette player this week? (laughs) Um, well, still listen to lots of podcasts. Uh, but I've been getting into um, electro swing has been fun to listen to. Ooh. Um, so it's like like a very 1920s vibe, but a lot of you can find some good playlists of like modern songs that have been adapted into that sound, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and uh, the other day when I was doing work, I was listening to Kanye West, which was also fun. I haven't listened to a lot of those songs in a long time. Little Kanye. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Um, kind of been on the synthwave train this week. So I was listening to a band called midnight danger. Kind of got like a, like a, almost got a bit of like a, a horror element to some of their synthwave. Mm. Like it could be a backing track in some sort of like kind of creepy movie or something like that. So it's, mm. it was good for kind of like leading up to Halloween. Like I had a bit of that spooky mm. haunted element, at least the songs that I were listening to. So now I've just been, been listening to a lot, but yeah, there's a lot of marking and other stuff that I had to do. So um, anytime I have to do work, I'm usually hopping on the, the synth wave train. Nice. It's easier to work too. So that was mm. kind of the, band that i was discovering this past week that's cool so then once we get into december it's gonna have like a a christmas backing theme huh maybe i don't know this i think this is more just by chance (laughs) and if i have to compare it to something but that was we'll we'll see what happens yeah you don't strike me as a a christmas music kind of guy christmas music kind of sucks i'm not i'm gonna take flack for that i know but i well i'll share the flack because i agree 100 percent. it's not that great I'm personally not even a big fan of Christmas movies and I like me. I like movies in general. So yeah. Christmas we'll is nice. For, we'll save that for Christmas time. Yeah. yeah. It's supposed to be about family and time off. Yeah. Not crappy music. Yeah. There you go. But we'll, we'll save that for opening lines in December and then we can take flack from people then. Nice. I did have <laughs> one thing I wanted to show you though. Okay. Just before we go, uh, because I, I lied to you. Oh, I you have tea. tea. It's I have one tea bag in that because I did <laughs> I did say I have no tea in the house, and then it was like two days later I went and opened up the cupboards with the glasses, which I open maybe once every three weeks, and then I saw the tea bag sitting there, and I was like, oh, I forgot. I had guests come over, and then someone asked me what kind of tea I had, and I was like, I don't have any tea here. So they're like, okay, I'll bring I'll bring my own, and they brought a few tea bags over. And there was one left over and I had it in the cupboard. Oh, man. So as soon as I opened the cupboard and I saw it, I was like, Oh, I lied to Braden's face. I need to let him know that, that there's, there's a tea bag. There was one singular tea bag in my house. So yeah, I felt like I, I owed that to you to let you know that I had lied to you. So yeah, I just wanted to let you know about the, the tea bag and yeah. apologize in front of you or to you in front of the whole world just because I 
I felt a little bad about that. Yeah, the whole world. That's I mean, that's crazy though that you have exactly one tea bag. <laughs> but it was enough to make me a liar. Well, that's true. So that's true. I appreciate that. You are nothing if not a gentleman. Well, I appreciate so. that. Mm-hmm. I do my best. <laughs> I don't always succeed, but I do my best. No, you do a good job. That's I mean, and at the end of the day, that's all you can do. It's okay to fail sometimes at being a gentleman. That's right. Yeah. At least in this arena. That's right. Yeah. In the context mm-hmm. of this show, we, we accept the failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, good stuff. That was a good talk. I think I, I definitely uh, learned some stuff and enjoyed that. Yeah. Me as well. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, as always audience, if you think there's anything that we need to know or talk about or whatever, just let us know on Instagram at speed strength performance for Thomas at Braden Southern for Braden Southern <laughs> and, uh, and then speed strength show for the show. Um, and that was, that was speed strength show the show. Thanks for coming along world. We will see you next time. Peace.